Heavenly Father, I pray now as your word is opened and uh, preached to your people, may the name of Jesus be lifted high and magnified. Father, show us. May our eyes be opened to the beauty of his death and resurrection, to the goodness of the love of our Savior and the glory of our King. May your spirit do this work in us, that this would not be um, news from men to the glory of men. May this truly be the gospel of Jesus Christ, from you, our God, to his glory, to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Luke 24. I want you to think for a moment about Bible stories the vignettes that we take from Scripture, uh, which we learn when we're very young. For most of us, this is how we first were taught Scripture. Stories told about Moses and Noah and Daniel and David. We sometimes package these stories in volumes that we call heroes from the Bible. And these are wonderful stories. They are full of amazing, miraculous events like a sea parting or the mouths of lions being shut. David and Goliath in particular stands out as a story that we love to hear and share. It was probably the first story that Ellie really wanted to hear over and over. And we still love watching a video where she fills in the words from the Bible story. And the story of David and Goliath really does have all the elements of a wonderful story that you are naturally drawn to, that you want to hear over and over and share. You have this astounding enemy, seemingly undefeatable, a giant of a man who strides out each morning to taunt God's people. And on the other side, you have an underdog, underestimated by everyone who steps forward to do what everyone else believes is impossible. But then with his trust in God, David looses the stone from the sling and the arrogant, sneering giant topples to the ground. As Saul and that Israelite army stand agape at this young shepherd who just defeated a giant, we feel this, this welling up of pride. We're proud for David about his victory. We love David. We're rooting for David. And then we're all the more excited for him. We love him all the more when we see him revealed to be God's king. Now, another reason that many people love the story of David and Goliath is that it appears to have an easily extracted moral. David faced an insurmountable enemy and defeated him because he trusted in God. So it is our inclination to ask, what is my insurmountable enemy that I need to defeat? Maybe it's your fear of heights or your rude colleague. It's piano lessons or your mother-in-law. Now this application sounds exciting. It rouses us to get our stones into our sling and to bring down our giants. But it actually misses the mark of the story and creates a moral that, when we pick it apart, is much worse and much less than what the Bible actually reveals. Now, of course, our natural inclination is to read the story and see ourselves as David. He's the main character. We want to connect with David. But David is just one person in this story. I don't think any of us think of ourselves as Goliath. 
But we should ask, what were 99.9999% of God's people doing in this story? They were hiding in fear, waiting for someone to come along and do what they were too afraid to do. Now, should they have been terrified about worldly enemies? No, they should not have. Should they have had more confidence in God like David did? Absolutely. There are many good lessons that we can and should take from the example of David. But still, the main thing that is happening in the story of David and Goliath is one man set apart and empowered by God, stepping forward to save his people from what appeared to be an undefeatable enemy. We are not David. We are the Israelites that need saving. You are not the hero in God's story. You are the one that needs a hero. And understanding this makes the story of David and Goliath so much better for us than it would be when we see ourselves as the hero. There are many things which by wisdom and perseverance, indeed by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome. You can overcome your fear of heights. You can be gracious to your rude colleague. You can even be respectful of your mother-in-law. That's easy for me. Jen's mother is lovely. But even though these are challenging things to overcome, the very fact that we can overcome them shows that these are not real Goliaths. What are our undefeatable enemies? The ones so powerful over us that we wouldn't have even thought to take them on. We would never have thought of them as the enemies in this story. Sin. Death. Imagine someone read you the story of David and Goliath, patted you on the back and said, Now get out there and defeat death. Get out there and save yourself from enslavement to sin. What would you do? Would you feel like David, ready to get the stone in the sling? We realize that when we are faced with the truly undefeatable enemies, we are not David. We are the Israelites, hiding away from the front lines, trying to ignore the taunting enemy. Anyone who tells you to go out and achieve your own salvation from sin and death to somehow be good enough or heroic enough to save yourself will either give you a false arrogance or will fill you with despair. What then can we chiefly take from the story of David? Indeed, what was God primarily working through all the great heroes of the Old Testament? If they are only examples teaching me how to be better, those examples will create a legalism that sounds empowering at first, but will ultimately fail me. What we do see in the Old Testament is a long history of a people who need saving. A people that cannot save themselves. And God tells those people to trust him as he raises up a chosen deliverer for them. Through Moses, God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. Through Joshua, they received the promised land. Through the judges and kings, they were delivered from their enemies. And David slew an undefeatable giant to save God's people. God saves his people through a deliverer. And all through the Old Testament, he was working towards a deliverance from the greatest and most undefeatable enemies to ever oppress this world. 
Adam and Eve first met these enemies when they were tempted by the snake. First among these adversaries was the snake himself, Satan, the adversary. He lied to tempt Adam and Eve to fall into sin, and like an invading army, sin quickly spread through the world, enslaving the hearts of all human beings. And through sin, death reigned. God laid on his rebellious creatures the curse of death, the just response to sin. And not just physical death, but the eternal perishing through God's wrath in hell. These opponents stand in the way for all of us of what would be most delightful. What we were made for. Peace with God in his manifest special good news joyful presence. Dwelling with him free from sin. Moses and David and Noah, they all heroically delivered God's people, but none of them could deliver God's people from their greatest enemies. None of them could conquer death. They themselves were sinners. Noah succumbed to drunken indecency. Moses angrily went against God's orders in leading his people. David committed adultery and murder. So sin and death still reigned. The greatest heroes could not stop them. The greatest enemies were not defeated. But as soon as sin came into the world, God promised that vile snake that a descendant of the woman would come and would have victory over him. He would be wounded by the snake, but he would crush his head. Through the Old Testament, God's deliverers pointed towards the coming salvation that God would work through this great deliverer. He would deliver God's people from his wrath like Noah. He would lead people out of slavery like Moses. And he would topple seemingly undefeatable enemies of God's people like David toppled Goliath. All of these victories were just a part of a historical plan, a story of redemption that was building up to the greatest victory. And then Jesus came to earth, God taking on humanity, and he lived a life completely free of sin. He himself was not under sin's tyranny. By this, he clearly demonstrated his superiority over David, Moses, Noah, and all the past heroes. And because he did not sin, he himself did not deserve the curse of death. Jesus deserved to walk away and leave us to be defeated by our enemies. But he faced death. He faced it head on at the cross. He took all our sin upon himself, took on the penalty of death, and absorbed the wrath of God. Here was the salvation that all those past deliverances pointed to. And we stand on and watch, like God's people hiding while David approached the giant. On Easter Sunday, we celebrate a victory. Death did not defeat Jesus. Sin would not get the last word. Let's now read Luke 24, 1 to 12 together. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, 
They went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the mother, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The angel asks the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? He reminds them. Jesus himself had taught them he was going to die and he was going to rise from the dead and yet somehow they still came to the tomb expecting a dead man. Why? Because the enemies of sin and death seemed too undefeatable. They were like Goliath. So mighty that nobody really understood what Jesus meant when he taught that he was coming to defeat sin and death this way. The woman went and told the disciples, and Luke says they also thought it an idle tale. Too good to be true. Then we see Peter reeling and marveling as he looks in the tomb. He sees it for himself, and he considers what actually might have happened here. Now we see a similar reaction as we continue to read in Luke 24. Let's read verse 13 about the road to Emmaus. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these, there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they, him they did not see. Pause for a moment here. 
These men also just cannot believe that Jesus defeated death. They believed he was a prophet. They heard his teaching. They saw that his miracles set him apart. As the one the scriptures had prepared them for, they saw, they hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Every sign pointed to that. They had even now heard the testimony of those who had seen the empty tomb. And they still would not believe it. They could not fathom that Jesus' deliverance would actually be such a miraculous and stupendous defeating of sin and death. They had seen Jesus die. They'd seen him succumb to death like every other hero of God's people. And even the mightiest of them had never been mighty enough to achieve such a victory as rising from the dead. This seemed too impossible a task even for God's Redeemer. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then, of course, we continue as Jesus reveals himself to these men, and they see that what he's saying is true. But Jesus teaches them here on the road that all of the scriptures were preparing God's people to understand and receive and trust and believe in this great victory. God's prophets were all pointing to this great salvation that Jesus would work. And all of those heroes and those victories were pointing to this one. Now we still hold God's word in our hand. We have a testimony to proclaim the sacrifice and the salvation and the victory of Jesus to us. And we need to keep this in our hands because, of course, we know even while we hold this book, we too often lose confidence that the enemies of sin and death can really be conquered. And we cannot forget that this whole book testifies to a great victory that we have through the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ. Jesus took on sin and death on the cross. Jesus went to the grave. The resurrection is his victory. Easter Sunday is a victory celebration where we remember the hero that came forward to take on enemies so powerful that nobody thought they could be defeated. But he was God's chosen man, sent and prepared by God in his power to accomplish his victory for his people, even for us. Jesus lived a perfect life and then took the place of sinners on the cross to defeat sin, our enslaver, and death. The Apostle Paul exhorts us to believe in that Easter victory and be confident in and delight in what it means even for us. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There was a problem in Corinth. There were people in the church who were preaching that there was no resurrection from the dead. At least not a resurrection of the body, perhaps even the soul. The power of sin and death were evidently just too great. It seemed like foolishness to think that sin and death could be defeated enemies for people like us. 
Paul answers this problem in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's start by reading verses 12 to 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The Christian gospel depends upon the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Our whole faith depends on Jesus actually, truly, physically rising from the dead. Our gospel depends on it because Jesus' victory at the resurrection was not just for himself. He defeated death for all those who trust in him. That's what he was sent to do. There is no Christianity if the resurrection was faked or purely metaphorical. Without the resurrection, those who have died before us have died. There is no hope for them. Without the resurrection, our faith now is in vain. And spending our lives laboring for the kingdom of heaven is vanity. But because the resurrection did happen, we do not just witness Jesus' victory. We get to enjoy and participate in the victory of Jesus, just like all Israel got to enjoy David's defeat of Goliath. Paul explains how this victory applies to us. Continue to read verses 20 through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has all come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is exempted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Paul says Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus' resurrected life was the first produce to be received of what would become a great harvest of resurrected people so that death need not be death or perishing. It is only sleep. Because Jesus died in our place on the cross because he represented us when he faced the punishment of sin and received death and hellish wrath. We who were in Adam who were under Adam's curse, can now belong to Jesus. 
Just as God saw Jesus as us on the cross, he sees us as Jesus now, counting his perfect record and his defeat of death as ours. His perfect life, his death, his victory, all of it counts for us. Now that victory is not yet complete. Death and sin are still present in this world, but the day is coming when all things will be put under the feet of Jesus. When he will present his total and utter victory to his Father that God may be all in all. On that day, all those who are still enemies of Jesus who have rejected him will be crushed under his feet, punished by death and the eternal perishing of the full extent of God's wrath in hell. But on that day, God will have a people who are his, who are not crushed under Christ, but are in him, who belong to him. They belonged to him on the cross as he died for them. They were declared justified by God because they belonged to Christ, because he had taken God's punishment for them. They belonged to Jesus when he rose from the dead. And they will belong to Jesus at the day of judgment. So they will not be judged as God's enemies. They will be victorious with Christ because they are in Christ. This is true for everyone who believes in Jesus, who puts their trust in his death and resurrection and cries out to him for salvation. We share in his victory. We do not die. At Easter, we celebrate that wonderful victory that counts for us because of his grace, his compassion, and love for sinners like you and me, his great love that we can barely comprehend, that we certainly did not deserve. Because of that, he died in our place. He died for us that he might rise for us, that we might rise from the dead in him that we will even enjoy his victory by reigning with him forever. Paul celebrates this coming victory with us. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verses 51 to 57. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we trust in Jesus, we are born again. Our souls are already renewed and are being sanctified for our eternal life with Jesus Christ in heaven. Our bodies still suffer decay and are subject to the pains of death. Sin still pollutes our flesh as we live the Christian life, as we experience the discipline and refining as God's people, that God even is working in us. But Paul wants us to keep our eyes on that future day 
When even our bodies will be renewed, resurrected, sinless, and eternal. Even our perishable body will put on its eternality just as Jesus' body was raised imperishable when he rose from the dead on that first Easter Sunday. And then, as fully glorified people, both body and soul, we in Christ will celebrate Jesus' victory just as it was promised in the prophets. Paul here quotes Isaiah and Hosea reminding us that it has always been God's plan to work towards this victory over sin and death. He quotes them here as a victory song that we will sing as triumphant people looking at death as a defeated enemy just as David lifted up the head of Goliath and brought it back to Jerusalem. We delight to see God's hero overcome the enemy that seemed undefeatable to us and then promise us that we get to share in that victory. Paul concludes this passage by saying that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Now the law was the standard by which we were shown to be sinners. It taught us what sin was and gave us God's rules that we were revealed to be transgressing every time we rebelled against him and chose our own way. And the wickedness of sin was shown to sting when we suffered the curse of death from it. But Jesus freed us from sin on the cross. So death loses its sting. God gives us victory through Jesus. The resurrection was that victory being worked even for us. This was God's great plan. And it was not just a great plan for us. It was a great plan for Jesus himself. It was always God's plan that Jesus would get the greatest glory from God's people by saving them. We get to return to the goodness of God's perfect good news presence that Adam and Eve had. But now we get even greater joy because we were saved from our sin and from death to be in that presence. And we get to rejoice in the presence of the one who saved us. He is our king exalted for his victory. We rejoice in that victory. What gets him the most glory gets us the most joy. This is God's perfect plan. Jesus' glory, our joy, praising him as our savior for all eternity. So now, brothers and sisters, thank God that you don't need to be the hero. You don't need to be David. Because the enemies of sin and death probably look like too much for you to handle. Many people in the world right now are feeling the weight of the enemies they cannot defeat. They are seeing their empowering humanistic legalism of self-help and success unraveling at the seams. Many of the people isolated in their homes are likely feeling a fear similar to those Israelites gazing out. Looking at a giant that none of them think can be toppled. And their fear is magnified because they believe this enemy ultimately cannot be defeated. Even if this virus passes them by, death is the enemy that comes and quashes every human pursuit, every human ideal and joy. It ends them all. But even while we Christians respect our governments and we honor our neighbor's health by obeying recommendations, we do not need to fear. We are not hiding from death, nor should we despair. At Easter, we stare down death as a defeated foe. We have our champion, 
Christ Jesus, who has defeated sin and death, who gloriously declared that victory on Easter Sunday when he rose from the dead. We celebrate that victory and we live in it even now. Paul closes 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 58 with an exhortation for those who will one day sing the final victory song over death with Jesus. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so, brothers and sisters, let Easter Sunday remind you that we are a victorious people through Jesus Christ, our Lord. While we look back on that first resurrection, and while we still look forward to that victory celebration to come, we live each day in light of what we have faith in and what we have hope for. While this world is fearful, be steadfast. When they oppose our faith, be immovable. Plant your feet firmly on the confidence of victory you have because of your faith in the gospel and the hope you have for eternal victory in it. And then live this life as a people with hope in that future victory. Abound in the work of the Lord. Live this life in view of your hope for an eternity reigning with Jesus. As this world mourns losing treasures on earth, you can happily give them away because you are storing up treasure in heaven. As this world fears death, you can face it as a defeated foe. As this world seeks to hoard goods and time to itself, you can spend this life laboring in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. The word gospel was a word that was used when a town crier or a runner from the battlefield stood in the town square proclaiming good news from the war. The gospel, good news, was that a battle had been won. The king was victorious. Now if we go back to look at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, we can see everything Paul has been saying our resurrection, the confidence of our victory in Jesus, all of that is true and rests in this good news that we proclaim. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1-8. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. All of our hope, our eternal victory, rests in our confidence in this true story of the hero who went out alone to face down our greatest foes and came back victorious. With a victory so miraculous that most people didn't believe it until they witnessed him return from the battle, triumphing over his foes. We hear the testimony of those witnesses who went out proclaiming the victorious gospel everywhere they went. And as we hear it and believe it, then we pass the gospel on. 
We go out like victorious soldiers, proclaiming good news of a victory beyond people's wildest imaginations. We shout out this good news, just as the women first proclaimed it when they went to the empty tomb, just as the apostles proclaimed it when they saw the risen Lord. He died for us, but he's not dead. He is risen. He lives now enthroned in heaven. So this Easter Sunday... Let us, church, remember that we are a victorious people through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You are not the hero of God's story, thank God. If you were, the story would be a tragedy. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the standard of our perfect holy God. On our own, nothing we can do can free us from our slavery to sin and the curse of death that lies on us. But thanks be to God that he sent Jesus Christ to earth. Jesus lived a sinless life and then died on the cross in the place of sinners, bearing our punishment. But the grave could not hold him. On Easter Sunday, he rose from the dead, triumphing over death. These historical events took place so that anyone who repents of their sin and rebellion against him and trusts in him, calls him their savior rather than their enemy, will enjoy his victory over sin and death now and for all eternity. Believe in Jesus, died and risen from the dead, and live steadfast with the confidence you have in him and the hope you have in an eternal, victorious kingdom under Jesus, your king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ over sin and death. We pray that praising you because the grave could not hold him. Heavenly Father, I praise you that this victory can count even for us. That Jesus took our punishment on the cross so that we might identify ourselves as his in his death and his resurrection. We can believe in him and call him Lord and be justified. You will look at us and see Jesus Christ. You have done so for all those who are saved. Father, we praise you for this great salvation, for the amazing love that you have shown us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And this Easter and every day, may we rejoice to live our whole lives in light of that sacrifice, that salvation, that wonderful victory, and the hope that we have of a future, of a glorious, victorious eternity with Jesus, our Savior and Lord. We pray this in his wonderful name. Amen.